Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. For millions of people around the world, Investing in stocks no longer involves picking individual companies or hiring a portfolio manager to pick them for you. It means investing in an index fund. With index funds, there's no portfolio manager buying the good stocks and selling the bad ones. Index funds are passively managed, meaning that they buy and sell stocks only when those stocks are added or removed from the index they track, like the S&P 500. Passive investors get the return of the overall stock market by investing this way rather than trying to beat the market and risk underperforming it. This isn't what these indexes were originally designed for, though. The first stock market index, the Dow Jones Transportation Index, was formulated 137 years ago by the editor of the Wall Street Journal, and it was used solely for informational purposes as an economic indicator to be published in the newspaper. But those days are long gone. Today, around $11 trillion is invested in index funds, up from around $2 trillion a decade ago. And since 2019, more money is invested in passive index funds than in actively managed funds in the United States. Thus, for many companies, their largest shareholders are index funds. These indices are not static, though. Their component stocks are constantly changing, and this has to happen as from time to time member companies might merge with each other, go private or shrink in size, leaving a gap in the index. Other small companies grow and can be added to replace the stocks that leave. General Electric, for example, had the longest presence of any company in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, having been added at the start of the index in 1896, only to be removed 122 years later in 2018, replaced by Walgreens. Today, the S&P 500 is the most important stock market index in the world, and being included in the index is obviously a big deal for a company, not only because membership provides a certain amount of prestige for company managers, but also just because of the amount of money that tracks the index. For S&P 500 companies, index investors are a stable shareholder base that will hold the shares no matter what. Now, what might work well for many individual investors might not always be good for the broader financial markets, and the indexing revolution, as it's grown, has caused some concern. Analysts at Bernstein have called passive investing worse than Marxism. The investor Michael Burry has called it a bubble. And shortly before his death in 2019, John Bogle, the father of index investing, warned that index funds' dominance might not serve the national interest. One big concern relates to market signals and capital allocation. Active managers direct investment to companies based upon those companies' financial prospects. They hire analysts who study the R&D activity, competitive position, regulatory outlook, and so on for individual companies. Using this information, they decide on whether they should buy or sell shares. 
If a company's stock price falls when it announces big losses, that's because active investors are selling. If a company shares rocket when it announces a new innovative product, that's because active investors are buying. Additionally, active investors might pay more attention when voting on corporate actions than passive investors do. Passive investors, by contrast, ignore annual reports and market rumours. They make no attempt to research what to invest in and what to avoid. They just mirror the market with a belief that the stocks they buy are fairly valued due to the effort put in by active investors. Big US stock index funds buy big US stocks because they're big US stocks and they are in the index being tracked. So how do companies get added or removed from indices? You'd probably assume that to be included in the index, a company would need to meet certain requirements. And on paper, at least, you'd be right. You can find the list of requirements for index membership in the methodology paper published on S&P's website. It lists conditions such as free float, profitability and market capitalization that make a company eligible. You might additionally assume that in order to remain in the S&P 500, companies would need to meet those requirements every time the index is rebalanced or risk being excluded. In reality, the S&P 500 doesn't work that way. There's a certain amount of discretion applied for both index ads and deletes. When AIG was bailed out in the fallout of the financial crisis, for instance, it wasn't excluded from the index despite the company's valuation and government ownership not meeting the published standard. Excluding AIG during a financial crisis might have been a destabilizing decision at the time, but it's not the only example of the rules being selectively applied by S&P's index committee. Now, just to be clear, it might make sense to have a discretionary overlay, especially when so much money tracks the index. Constant changes could be disruptive to the market, impose trading costs and capital gains taxes on the public. When indexes rebalance, many active investors buy and sell ahead of the index changes to profit from the movements of the herd. Profits earned by these traders come out of the pockets of index fund investors. If S&P minimized the number of changes, they reduce those costs for index fund investors. The choice of an index ad is not always obvious prior to its announcement. As there are often over 100 companies large enough to be admitted, and S&P picks among them with a balance of industries in mind. In fact, in some respects, the index is actively managed, requiring companies to demonstrate profitability in most, but not all, circumstances. The popular biotech company Vertex was admitted in 2013, in spite of a long history of losses, for example. Google's Class A shares were allowed to remain in the index when a new, more liquid share class was introduced a few years ago. The historic rule of one share class per company was changed to prevent needless buying and selling. Today, the S&P contains 505 different stocks, but only 500 companies, because it includes two share classes of stock from five of its component companies. Now, a more mechanical approach is taken with the Russell 2000, the most widely followed index of US smaller companies, where the components are selected by a formula and not by a committee. 
The reconstitution takes place once a year on the last Friday of June, forcing all active and private managers to devote attention to one very large transparent trading event. So what other things might affect S&P index membership? Well, a new working paper titled Is Stock Index Membership for Sale? offers an additional possible selection criteria. The paper found that major US corporations that purchase bond ratings from S&P Global have a higher chance of being added to the S&P 500 index, even when they don't meet all of the stated criteria for inclusion. The paper published by the National Bureau of Economic Research, a non-profit network of economists that regularly circulates working papers to foster debate, suggests that companies might be aware of this and possibly seek to curry favour with the index provider by buying additional services close to the selection dates. In a statement to the press, S&P Global described the working paper as flawed, stating that the two arms of the business are separate, with policies and procedures in place to ensure that they are operated independently of one another. Now, of course, in their defence, a growing company can be expected to solicit a credit rating in order to finance expansion efforts, and this expansion could help the firm to graduate into the index on its own merit. To obtain a rating, corporate borrowers pay an agency such as S&P Global Ratings to assess their creditworthiness. The paper finds that when an opening is expected in the index, potential entrants tend to acquire more ratings from S&P, but not from rival bond rating services like Moody's, which isn't a major index provider. The researchers noted that To rule out the possibility that firms buy more ratings merely because they wish to issue more bonds for expansion, rather than to curry favour with S&P, we control for both their bond issues and purchase of Moody's ratings in all regressions. S&P uses a high degree of discretion to decide which firms are included, according to the researchers. They found that the published criteria justify only about 62% of the index members' positions during the period studied and just 3% of additions. Those percentages are far lower than for the Russell 1000 index, they said. S&P appears to deviate from its published criteria in its decisions on adding firms to its index much more than Russell does, according to the paper. This is, of course, a sensitive topic for ratings companies who came under fire after the global financial crisis from critics who argued that they gave risky bonds higher ratings than they deserved to maintain good ties with the corporate issuers paying for them. As recently as 2020, Morningstar agreed to pay $3.5 million to settle with the SEC over a conflict of interest matter. The researchers see potential economic downsides for those tracking the S&P 500 if less eligible firms are included in the index. Companies that edge out better qualified peers to enter the index fare worse in subsequent years, the paper said. Without naming any specific examples, the study says that such firms see on average a 14.6% drop in profitability and a 37% decline in return on assets in the four years after entry compared to similar stocks that remain excluded. 
They also invest about 13% more in the two years after entry, echoing concerns that entry into an index loosens shareholder shackles over corporate decisions that may prove costly. Their relative advantage in cost of capital and investment suggests possible misallocation of resources in the economy induced by S&P's discretion in its index membership decisions, the paper said. Okay, so if it's true that companies do pay to be included, how much should they pay? What's it worth for a company to be included in the S&P 500? You might expect it to be quite valuable. After all, corporate executives do freely admit to planning and timing corporate actions like acquisitions, divestitures and other strategic moves around the effect their actions may have on gaining or preserving membership in an important equity index. According to research by McKinsey, gaining entry to or being excluded from a major index does indeed move a company's share price, but they also found that this move is short-lived, and inclusion in a major index is not a factor in a company's long-term market valuation. We know that there is a pop when a company is added to an index and a price decline when it's removed. But McKinsey analysed the longer-term price effect of the inclusion of 1,032 US-listed stocks in the S&P 500 index to see whether a place in the index creates a lasting price premium. As expected, they did find a pop in price upon inclusion, but the excess return disappeared within 45 days after the effective date. In terms of statistically significant positive returns, the effect disappears even sooner after 20 days. This result is consistent with the idea that liquidity pressure drives up share prices initially as investors rebalance their portfolios, but prices then normalise once portfolios have been rebalanced. In the end, there was no permanent price premium for companies that had been added to the S&P. This shows that the value of a stock is, in the long run, tied more to the overall business quality than membership in a major equity index. McKinsey also looked at deletions from the S&P 500, finding a similar pattern of temporary price changes around the announcement. The price pressure following exclusion from the S&P 500 faded after 40 to 50 days. If there's no lasting effect associated with index membership, executives should not in any way adjust their behaviour in order to gain inclusion. They should make the best business decisions they can and not concern themselves with the decisions of the S&P. Talk to you guys later. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.